everybody. I'm back here with another edition of the 1 Million by 1 Million podcast. Today, I'm here with Cloud Apps Capital Partners, Matt Holleran. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's start by having our uh, audience meet you. So tell us about yourself, a bit of your background, and also about Cloud Apps. Yeah, well, I've... Uh... I think the most interesting market in the world and business problems to work on are business software problems. And I've been in the business software industry for 25 plus years um, in companies like Clarify, the leader in customer support in the enterprise software world, uh, Data Sweep on the manufacturing floor, and Salesforce.com where my team started uh, and I led the app exchange ISV and platform ecosystem. And I've also been an investor uh, now for for over 12 years, uh, 10 in the in this category. I uh, started my career more than Stanley in the buyout industry as an analyst, and then was at another firm called Emergence Capital Partners uh, for six years prior to starting Cloud Apps Capital Partners in 2014. So that's a little bit about our history, both as, as an operating executive uh, and as an investor, and that's helped me to get to know a lot of entrepreneurs, but also executives and partners and advisors who can help small companies on their way. And what about uh, Cloud Apps Capital Partners? When did you start, and and uh, what's the investment thesis of the firm? Yeah, so at, you know, my prior firm and before, I kept running across um, uh, great entrepreneurs and executives who were mapped onto a really important business problem and had great expertise, uh, but maybe they didn't have product and market yet. Maybe they had early customers. Maybe they had a small team of five, and I kept having to say to them the venture market doesn't do that stage of investing anymore. And so as I thought about that, and I said that for the fifth or sixth time, and some companies that are now very large, like, for example, Todd McKinnon, the president and CEO uh, and founder yeah. of Okta, now yeah. worth, you know, 15 to $20 billion. I was his first call at my prior firm, but it was, quote, too early. And so I, as I thought about that, and I said, you know what, um, that, that's the stage for the right entrepreneurs mapped to the right problem, uh, where you can give them the right amount of capital to build a great business application, but also a system along the way. And that's what we really refer to as the classic Series A. Um, and Cloud Apps Capital Partners was founded for us to be the best firm in the world uh, in the cloud business application market at the classic Series A stage. And um, elaborate on that for me for a second, uh, because, you know, the early stage market has changed. It is now, you know, quite segmented. People are doing, some people are doing pre-seeds, some are doing seeds, some are doing post-seeds, some are doing pre-series A, small series A, large traditional series A. Where do you, where does your series A fit in that continuum? Well, first, you know, I, I'm not qualified to speak to the consumer market, um, but in the cloud business application market, you know, uh, uh, our read of a, an entrepreneur who's mapped onto an important problem is building their business around an important executive. You know, a $2 million financing from a headless syndicate of pre-seed and angels is unlikely to give them enough capital uh, or focus or expertise for them to get past the goalposts of the larger firms and what they're looking for in traction in teams. So we don't think that, you know, sort of we call it, you know, the dreaded $2 million headless syndicate is what entrepreneurs really need. So from our perspective, you know, and we've done this now um, several times in fund one and in our second fund, 
Uh, we've had, you know, two, uh, we've had multiple companies who were two domain experts in a very big problem. They had, you know, no lines of code yet and no customers. And we might have led a four million classic Series A one financing, and then a four or six million A two to help them to get, you know, past the goalposts of, of uh, what the larger firms are looking for. So, for an example, uh, Propel, now the leader in cloud product lifecycle management, a huge global category, just raised an eighteen million financing from Northwest in the fall of this year, and that's a really good example where we first invested in Red, a domain expert in the market globally, um, before they had any code. So I just want to give you a read for it. We like to work with angel investors. We like to work with some of the leading um, seed firms uh, in mm -hmm. the classic Series A syndicate. But in general, these entrepreneurs generally need really about $5 million in order to, to uh, really build a good product and get the right kinds of really customers. So that's how we see it in the cloud business application world. But again, I think the, the seed and the pre-seed market works very well on the consumer side. We just that's not an area where we focus. No, I, that is not what I'm hearing at all. So I mean, what you're saying is very refreshing that you're willing to do, a, you know, four million, five million round um, on, you know, just pure team and and concept and no uh, no line of code. But the truth is, most of the micro VCs who are doing B two B SaaS are looking for product market fit. Most of them, some are looking for a certain MRR metric, whether that is 20,000 per month or 40,000 per month, in some case 80,000 per, per month before they're willing to write that million, three million, million to three million checks. So there's, I think um, your point is actually, I don't think it applies to consumer markets at all. It definitely does not apply to B2B SaaS because we have talked to, I would say, hundreds of micro VCs at this point who are, most of them are not investing on, at the concept stage. Yeah, I would say there's, a, there's also a difference, which is, like, I think Propel is a great, you know, case study for us here, right? Um, this is a $15 billion global TAM category. Um, and, you know, Ray Hines, the founder and CEO of Propel, had been the VP of products and strategy at Agile Software, which is the mm -hmm. people systems of PLM yep. uh, back in the day. And a mm -hmm. uh, you know, great domain expert and had cloud-specific expertise. And so and his thinking through, is, is the PLM market ready because it's so mission critical to move to the cloud? And they're moving them to the cloud in the right way to deliver them more capabilities. That's the kind of business problem. It, you know, it's a, it's a big problem um, that you need to build applications for and get customers successful. So you really can't, right, um, uh, put 100000 or 500000 to get that going. It, it doesn't make a dent in the problem. So I think it's, it's to a point there are a lot of big categories, a lot of titles that need applications for their teams that, that need to be served ahead of here. But there are also a lot of companies that, um, that are not venture scale companies. Um, and that's yeah. a great thing. You know, we, we don't call them lifestyle businesses. We say those are amazing businesses that people are working hard on, um, but they're unlikely to be venture scale IPO companies. And for those folks, a seed financing looking into traction where they might return capital or they might get acquired along the way, that may very well work, um, but the, the big problem is it doesn't. Well, okay, I will push back on this a little bit. Um, your point is well taken that most businesses out there are not venture scale businesses. That is absolutely correct, and, and we constantly harp on that uh, with our audience because uh, – 
you know, as I said, uh, we, we don't expect that million companies out there are going to be fundable. Only a very small, small percentage of those companies are going to be fundable at a venture scale. But uh, we do have case study after case study of companies who have been doing venture scale businesses and have gone on to raise huge amounts of financing but have bootstrapped the early stages. And, uh, and there are very, very good examples of that. From your previous uh, life at Salesforce.com, you must remember Aptus that went to $5 million in revenue before they raised a penny of financing, and that is a venture scale category. Yeah, so I think, you know, um, Aptus is a great example of that. And just to give you a view, um, at the time they were founded, um, I was leading the Salesforce platform. Um, mm-hmm. which they had built their business on. And, you know, I, uh, I met with Nihar, uh, the founder, uh, co-founder and head of products there, who was a peer of mine uh, at Clarify back in the day, uh, mm-hmm. before they chose to start the business. So I know the, the business and the, and the category quite well, and you're absolutely right. I think they did the right things for them to bootstrap, use customer capital along the way, uh, and they'd also been successful executives and entrepreneurs making that choice the right way. So there are situations where companies can you know, self-fund through that period. I think you've also seen a number of them, particularly internationally, um, like in Atlassian, for which there's no capital you know, into the That's business right. prior to late-stage yep. financing. Um, but I think those are, those are generally um, an exception. Because when you get to a venture-scale category, you have to move, too, because vacuums don't exist forever in the world. And if, if you're not going as fast as you appropriately can in a venture category, someone else may, and you may lose the opportunity. Fair enough. All right. So I'm going to ask you something uh, based on what we just talked about as your background as the head of platforms at Salesforce.com. So one of my observations is that um, there are, oh, I don't know how many, you probably have a, a specific number. My assessment is there are probably a couple of hundred companies at this point that are doing upwards of $50 million in annual revenue, SaaS companies. Um, which of those do you see as um, either doing, that you know that they're doing, or are good candidates for doing the platform strategy that made Salesforce.com so successful? Because very often these companies are you know, leaders with one product, and then they have built the channel to reach those customers and so forth. So one of the easiest best, and best ways to expand that would be to get all the adjacencies and get products in the adjacencies. Now, it's not easy for SaaS companies to integrate random uh, products that are on a different stack. So um, can you comment on this whole phenomenon that's going on there? And I'm going to tie this into your investment strategy in a moment. Yeah, well, I think um – all uh, cloud companies that are, you know, building and uh, solving an important problem, that are owning an important title in businesses around the world, you know, their fundamental strategy should always be for them to go uh, market and sell and acquire customers right on their own. Uh, and in addition to that, um, there are certain categories of companies that should work with a Salesforce.com app exchange marketplace, um, or now the marketplaces that you see at all of the other cloud right companies. Um, which just That's not my question. No, I, th- I don't I think you misunderstood my question. The question that I'm asking is, so Salesforce.com did its own platform and the app exchange around that platform. Right. I'm asking the question that 
um, you know, these companies that have reached a certain amount of critical mass and have a channel and have a customer base and so forth, some of them, in my opinion, should be doing that platform strategy. They should be having their own platforms and building an ecosystem around that platform to to address some of the adjacencies to their product line. Yes, I would say uh, in most cases, uh, the answer is correct. As you're saying, should they be building on uh, Amazon or Azure, right, um, or are you saying their own data centers? I think you're saying some external third-party um, platform, correct? I, I think the data center matters less. I think it's more the, you know, the APIs and the, you know, something that will allow entrepreneurs to build on their stack, basically. No, I understand. Yeah, I think it's, from an API viewpoint, it's a necessity. It's uh, really important for any cloud business application company today. And, you know, for your uh, customers that are using Salesforce.com or using Workday or using NetSuite slash Oracle um, or using other cloud companies, it makes sense to build the right integrations in the right way and to leverage those marketplaces. You know, choosing, choosing to, um, to, you know, uh, build on a platform is a really important decision. And in some cases, it's absolutely the right answer to build on Salesforce's platform or on other uh, ISV companies that also have a platform like a Google, and in some cases it isn't. And that's something you really want to, to think carefully about as you're starting these businesses and also work with people who can help to help you to, to make that decision. And unfortunately, having started the Salesforce App Exchange and the Salesforce platform ISV ecosystem, uh, this is something we've been thinking about for a long, long time, and we're able to assist entrepreneurs to make those calls. So um, let us say a company in your portfolio has reached a certain level of uh, critical mass, let's say 50 million in revenue, um, and, and wants to acquire companies, other SaaS companies that may be able to give them a second or a third product that is adjacent, can leverage the channel, etc. cetera. Um, how do you think about integrating such an acquisition or a set of acquisitions? I think that you know the the topic is timely, right? Because there are a number of cloud companies, right, that are buying late stage cloud companies um, to help to round out their portfolios in product, but also they need the expertise in the sales and marketing, right, for that other product area. Um, and we'll we'll come at kind of how do you cross sell? How do you do that effectively? You're also seeing you know private equity firms you know buy uh, cloud companies and combine them right, with the intent for them to cross-sell and upsell and have a larger footprint. Um, but it's, you know, that is more challenging than people think. But I think, that, you know, to answer your question, it's, you know, first, the CEO needs to think very carefully about that product extension, needs to think very carefully not only about the product fit and the API and the product integration, they also need to make sure that the, the team that they're acquiring, that, that, that you know how to sell to that adjacent title. You know, what does that, that title care about? So, for example, like Salesforce.com, historically selling to the VP of Sales. They've made multiple acquisitions for the VP of Marketing. Now, how do you sell to a VP of Marketing? What does she care about? What are their key objectives? Right? What's the way to get them comfortable? Or the, in their support cloud, how do you sell to a VP of Customer Support? It's not just the product. It's, you need to also have the expertise for how to sell and service those entities in order to cross-sell efficiently and effectively. So that's the yeah. advice that, that we provide. 
That's that's actually very uh, interesting and relevant point. Um, but I'll go back to asking you the question on product integration. If there are two different cloud products and two different stacks on two different stacks, how do you integrate? Yeah, so I think first is is um, um, let's let's use Salesforce.com as an example. Yeah, that's right. exactly why I'm asking you these questions. Yeah, no, no, no. I think I think it's helpful, right? Which is, you know, Salesforce has acquired um, a number of clouds that support other executives, right? So from their core VP of Sales, they also now have VP of Marketing, they have VP of Customer Service and Support. Those companies, um, in many cases, brought their own clouds and own applications. But the API that you're framing is what makes the magic of that work, right? And so, you know, how do you – you can build via APIs on both sides. You can build beautiful integrations in the Salesforce.com that are as good or better that they may be able to build on themselves internally, which is very cool which is what happens to make the, app, the marketplace and the app exchange and, and other app exchange and marketplaces like that at other companies work. So it really has to do with the API and, and the combined end user experience. And then over time, right, you can synthesize, you know, broader um, uh, cloud transformation and moving applications one onto the other like Adobe's done with their work with Azure. Uh, but the starting point really is with the users and via the APIs and focusing on the users and the app-to-app business process and workflow. Very good. Very, very good uh, answer. So now let's tie this into the um, investment strategies that you are following. Um, what kinds of cloud com- companies are appealing to you? Of course, you want a venture scale category. That's, uh, you know, kind of table stakes. Otherwise, you don't want to do the kind of investing that you're doing. But Within that, we're looking at a very mature category, right? Cloud apps is a very mature category. So what is, how are you thinking about where in cloud apps are the big venture scale opportunities today sitting in the you know, first quarter of 2019? Well, I think our model is, um, and in part what helped to inspire the firm, is the, in 2007, um, I led an event for um, at my prior firm for going global, and we had executives from Salesforce.com who've been part of the global expansion in Europe and Asia Pac, uh, and we had um, the, uh, Dave Goldberg, um, who's who has since passed away, who's the, the CEO of SurveyMonkey, and how SurveyMonkey approached going global. And what became clear at that time is that the, the cloud market was increasingly global and increasingly not only small, medium, sized company, but global enterprise. So the question on what's a venture scale category, when you consider that entrepreneurs can serve the world, right, um, you now have global scale categories that may not have existed in the client server world. So for us, it's really about saying, what's the, who are the titles that are not well served? So if you're the VP of HR at a global enterprise, you're well served by Workday. If you're the VP of Sales, at um, a industrial B2B company of medium scale that doesn't want necessarily the most cutting-edge technology, it's likely you're well-served by Salesforce.com. But how do you think about titles that aren't well-served and building out businesses around the right titles that are of global scale? That's pretty interesting. You know, for example, ServiceMax, and I had championed that initial class series at my prior firm. We're fortunate at our firm. We were investors. Now that's going after the VP of field service. That's a big global category if you can get it right. 
And that's mm-hmm. a good example of the kinds of titles that we think about. Okay. Interesting way to look at it. And uh, what is your TAM assessment right now? I mean, given you're talking about these underserved titles, you must have done some assessment of how many of those titles are there because, you know, the, the main, the big titles have have been picked up. So you you have one op- option of cutting it on verticals and, and looking at, you know, vertical-specific titles in some cases or clusters of vertical-specific titles, manufacturing titles and um, services titles and so on and so forth, uh, consumer packaged goods titles. What, what uh, you know, what homework have you done to assess what kind of TAMs, which titles have venture-scale TAMs that are worth going after? Well, you are correct in saying that we do have a map for that, and we have an evolving map for that, and there are a lot of titles that are not well-served. And, and, and there are many titles that are not well-served for which it may not make sense to build a business around they can't right. get it. They no, they, they, it may be budget. okay to build a business, but not a venture scale business. Right. And so, like, um, give you a couple that I think are, are interesting um, that you might that you might enjoy. So, um, right now, there's a brand new title, right, called customer privacy management. That may be mm-hmm. the same as the general counsel, and the general counsel is increasingly a business person in addition to a lawyer. So with a new GDPR legislation and California yep. Privacy Act, uh, we're pleased to have led the classic Series A financing in a company called DataGrail last year. Right, That yeah. helps companies uh, to not only manage the compliance, and when customers want information back, they can provide it, but also as a result be proactive about changing the privacy dynamic and relationship between a company yeah. and its customers. So that's an example of, of a title that uh, those people are all over the world, um, and it's a new title that is pretty exciting uh, for DataGrail to be servicing around the world, but also connected to a title that's existed forever. And you know, serving the general counsel, we think, is a great idea. So that's, a, I think, a good example of, of titles heretofore not well served. Very good. So um, let's talk about a few of your portfolio companies, what you have invested in that you feel really good about as, is going well, and uh, again, point out when they came to you, what did you see in these companies that really captured your attention? And you, have, you gave us one example to begin with, so give us a little bit more color on, on, on these companies that you have chosen to invest in. Yeah, so this is... It's just, uh... Uh, yeah, I'll share some of you a little deeper in something that we've talked about, uh, but also I'll, I'll tell you and for your readers, I would encourage them to think about this or, or for your community. Um, we encourage entrepreneurs to think carefully about whether or not they should announce funding as opposed to reflexively announce it. So we made a number of investments that are not public information mm-hmm. because the entrepreneurs think it's super important what they're building and they're waiting for the right time to let the world mm-hmm. know um, that this great opportunity exists. So I just want to give you a view for, you know, what we, we may talk about uh, or what you might see, you know, on our website is a subset of what we've done. Um, mm-hmm. And I would encourage your entrepreneurs to consider this question. But a couple of examples um, that we talked about are here earlier, I think, would be representative. Uh, you know, first, um, ServiceMax was four people, two great domain experts um, in field service management. 
and had to chant in that super hard uh, to get that first investment done at the classic Series A stage. I then recruited the CEO, Dave Yarnold, uh, who I'd worked with and for at Clarify, the customer support company years ago, uh, who had been a uh, VP of sales from $4 million to $100 million of success factors. Dave built an extraordinary business that became a global category leader and was acquired by GE for a billion in cash. Um, two that we talked about here earlier today, you know, Propel is a large global category, uh, super domain expert in Ray Hine. They had two co-founders when we uh, made the initial investment, and we helped them to bring on board a co-founder. Um, and we've led the syndicate for the A1 and the A2, and I'm pleased to share with you that we think they're building a great business and recently had Norwest join an 18 million Series B um, and join the board. And as I mentioned so, uh, from the early data grail, you know, they had three people at the time at which we led the 4 million classic Series A1 financing last year. And uh, we think they're building a, a great company. Um, and they're, built, they're going as fast as they rightfully should. So all three examples have the following characteristics, right? They're great domain experts. They have previous success track record, and you've known them before from past lives. Is that accurate? Um, no. So I did not know the original ServiceMax team, but I did recruit in someone that I'd known. I did know okay. uh, Ray, who was a partner of mine many years ago when he was at Agile Software. Um, mm -hmm. And in the case of DataGrail, I did not know the team. I think they have the really great domain experts, both in customer-facing applications and in product. Um, but I did know some of the, their early advisors and, and folks who are high-value angels who participated in the syndicate, and as a result, got to know them quite well. Okay. So the prior knowledge requirement is not there, but the domain knowledge, it sounds like domain knowledge is your main uh, driver, is it? Is that correct? Yes. You have to be able to understand a title that merits a company to be built around, and in order to understand that title, you need to really understand their problem and their language. Yeah. Cool. Very good. And um, if you look at your deal flow from the last, let's say, 12 months, the 2018 deal flow, um, how many deals have you looked at, and what are the nuggets you're seeing that, uh, you know, speak somehow to your investment thesis? What are you seeing out there? Yeah, so we um, we make about three or four investments per year, and the reason for that is we do a lot of work on the front end, um, but on the back end we also write take action items and recruiting and partnerships and feedback, and so we want to deliver on our value proposition. Uh, we receive inbound. Um, via our network, which again, I've been in the market for 20-something years, and from starting the Salesforce App Exchange, we think we have a, a great and unfair network. But we probably see inbound north of three to 400 per year that are coming mm -hmm. via our network. Um, and then we also have proactive strategies where we're you know, creating opportunities as well. But just for you, that's the, the scale of, of what we see. Um, mm -hmm. And But again, from our perspective, we... We want to make sure we're doing our work on the front end and we're delivering on our value proposition to the entrepreneurs on the back end. So we make sure we're only doing about three or four a year. And, and what did you see in the 300 to 400 deals that you've seen? What's, um, what are the nuggets? What are the trends in, those, in that portfolio of deals? I, th I think it's consistent with what we're describing. There are companies who've realized from our positioning and what it is that we work on um, that they're going after titles um, to serve. And they come from all over the world, um, which we think is very, very interesting. And we see a mix of horizontal applications 
as well as uh, vertical applications, as you mentioned earlier. So it's a pretty healthy gamut, and in a good way, genuinely in that set, seeing the folks who have recognized they need the classic Series A, both in the capital amount and in the approach. And um, talk to me a bit about geography. Uh, you said you're seeing a global deal flow. Are you interested in investing globally? Yes, from, from our point of view, you know, our executive network and the cloud business application, large companies for partnerships via their marketplaces or other, they generally live uh, around the Bay Area. Um, but we speak to entrepreneurs, in fact, they have a call tomorrow for a company in London where they've, they've gotten a reasonable start and they know what they want to accomplish, uh, but they know they want to move to the Bay Area. So for, we're open to that in all respects. It's unlikely we'd make many direct investments um, in uh, companies in, in Europe or in Asia, just given the geography and our network scalability. Uh, but we certainly look at companies like that all over the world. And not mm -hmm. in our portfolio, but you know, Zendesk, um, great example of that, what, what Benchmark yeah. did there. And um, you know, I think that's you know, one of those successes. Yeah, well, Freshdesk, which is a key competitor of Zendesk, was incubated in 1 million by 1 million, and they're also an Indian company. That's not a Silicon Valley company to begin with. Agreed. Okay, great. Um, what are your parting comments to our audience before we uh, close up this call? I would just say that, you know, uh, end customers all over the world, um, businesses, whether or not they're e-commerce companies or industrial companies or medical companies or med device companies, uh, companies all over the world are looking for great cloud business applications, small, medium, and large. And as a result, as an entrepreneur, I think there's no better time to consider um, launching out to start an application for a title that is very, very meaningful. And as a result, think of that, uh, that global TAM. I think you have to think about how and when you'll be ready to service that global market. I would encourage you to think about doing that at the very, very beginning because uh, that can, you know, like you said, open up the world to you and make the difference between it, you know, being a, a public company or a you know, great company that you own and, and that you bootstrap because you framed. But I just wanted to make sure that people know we spend a lot of time talking to end customers and, and I started my career as an end customer software, and we can tell you that you know, they're looking for great cloud solutions, so this is a great time. Fantastic. Well, great speaking with you, Matt. Thank you for sharing your perspective. And audience, mm -hmm. thank you for listening today. Um, we will be back again with another edition of the 1 Million by 1 Million podcast. Meanwhile, do come to the website and look at the free public roundtables. You can come with your projects, and we have working sessions, the, the mentoring sessions. Weekly mentoring sessions are great places for you to bring your projects and seek strategic guidance. And uh, otherwise, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.